Welcome to the Into the Wilderness podcast. This week we're going to be talking about wildlife crime with Sergeant Andrew Maven uh, from the Scottish Wildlife Crime Division. Division. He is the Scottish Wildlife Crime Coordinator. A fascinating podcast and there'll be some things on there under wildlife crime that you probably haven't even thought about. Yeah, there is. Uh, and the... Big thing to take away from this is that if you see anything which might fall under the category of wildlife crime, report it. Yeah, definitely, definitely. We've got a competition winner like we do every two weeks. And, Byron. Yes, oh, well, I'm going to tell you, you've got the name yeah. of uh, of the gent who won. We're, we're going to share the picture on our social media feeds on Instagram and Facebook, the, the winning picture. You had a chance to win uh, a set of Smith Optics Elite um, shooting glasses. I think they had multiple. I haven't opened it for two weeks, but I, it had multiple lenses, didn't it? Yeah, they do, and it comes in a really cool carry case as well. Yeah, really, uh, really neat prize. And we had lots of picture entries because it was a pic- picture competition. Loads of entries, and we've picked. It was actually quite hard. Yeah, there was a, a number of very good pictures, but this one kind of stood out. Yep, Ruan Bester. Congratulations. I think that's how you say your name. Congratulations. Uh, shoot us an email, podcast at paceproductionsuk.com. You've got one month to claim your prize, and it's uh, all yours. We will not be running a competition on this show. But don't worry. That for a very good reason, because we're running seven days of competitions, um, starting from the 5th of December all the way to the 11th, every single day. Listen to the show. And enter the competition. We'll tell you how to do it every single day. And you can win. There's some absolutely fantastic prizes on it. You will be able to listen to the show just the same way that you're listening to this right now. So however you listen to our podcast is how you'll be able to listen to the seven days of Christmas on the dates that Daryl just gave. Uh, And you will have to enter that evening that it comes out, that day that the podcast comes out, because we announce the winner for each day. The following day. The following day. But we will also at the same time, be going live on Facebook. Um, so you, there will be a live Facebook video that day also telling you about How the competition. How to do it, yeah. Um, so you check us out on Facebook, Podcast Into the Wilderness, iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, our YouTube channel as well, Podcast Into the Wilderness. All those places, you'll be able to see all of the, all of the prizes with a, a chance to win. On the 15th of December, which would be the normal date for the next release of the podcast, we will be doing a live YouTube show. We did one a year ago where people could call in, and we're going to do it again. People can call in. All of our lovely listeners can call in and chat to us about anything, really. So if you are interested in that, you need to go and check our Facebook page, because on there, Podcast Into the Wilderness, I, you I, have w- all I will the, be putting the, the link up on our website, thepacebrothers.com, uh, because it's a YouTube. So you don't actually have to have Facebook to be able to watch us doing this live. It'll be a YouTube um, thing, and you call in and chat to us. Yeah. So get your thinking hats on now if you've got some questions for us. Uh, we are going to probably put up uh, a couple of things that we want to actually yeah. talk about a little bit closer to the time. We will uh, probably announce those on one of the podcasts before the 15th. Yeah, we will do. And I think that's us. Yep. That's uh, we're ready for uh, another podcast. There's going to be a new one out, which Daryl mentioned in two weeks. And in between then, I think you've got seven, eight, eight podcasts to listen to between now and the live one. We've got the product one and seven days of Christmas. Well, the product one comes before this one. So oh. that'll already be out. So you'll have seven. Okay, you'll <laughs> have seven. But 
it's just going to be podcast yeah. law because it is December. Nobody wants to be doing work right now. You <laughs> want something to distract yourself and lead up to Christmas. You've found it. Listen to all the podcasts that we're putting out. Uh, this podcast, as with all of them, is uh, supported by the Scottish Association for Country Sports. They are Scotland and Northern Ireland's largest field sports advocacy body, representing members' interests across the UK, from firearms licensing to wildlife and land management to broader uh, field sports insurance and legal support. SACS is run by its members for members. If you are not a member of a shooting organisation, uh, you should be, and I urge you to go and check out the Scottish Association for Country Sports. Enjoy the show. Andy, thank you very much for joining us on the Into the Wilderness podcast. We're going to be talking about the less desirable part of the countryside, the stuff that shouldn't really happen. We're going to be talking about wildlife crime. But before yep. we really get into that, it would be useful for us, because uh, I don't know, and also for our listeners, just to give a little bit of your background and how you've, uh, you, you sort of your time through the police and then how you've ended up doing what you're particularly doing now. Yeah, well, I, I've got just over 20 years uh, service with uh, initially Strathclyde Police and then with Police Scotland. Um, so I came from a sort of initially a, a uniform background in community policing and then moved into work uh, latterly on the government's contest counterterrorism strategy, really on the uh, on, on one of the prevent strands of that. And through some of my policy work, I was asked to, when, when my time there came to an end to take on the sort of policy aspect prior to Police Scotland coming into being for wildlife crime to do some policy support for what was the, the lead officer in, in Scotland um, at the time was Assistant Chief Constable Rudy Nicholson from Strathclyde Police. And that's very much how I came into this. And then with the development of Police Scotland, um, the, it became obvious in the new structure that there was a need for a, a strat policy strategy stroke uh, sergeant's role and, and and that's how i became involved in that and now four years later i'm i'm, I'm still involved in it and have built up my knowledge to to, to a certain degree of wildlife crime hmm. so what's actually involved in like a day-to-day -day life of a wildlife crime officer well to give you to give you a, a, some insight into what we in police scotland we have 13 divisions now um and and six of those divisions have a full-time wildlife crime officer based on the sort of demand uh, that comes in in terms of incidents. And uh, the remaining divisions have a part-time officer. So to give you a sort of a day-to-day -day job, a role is quite difficult. But if I can talk to you about the full-time officers, they very much come in and try and link in. They review the incidents that have come in. And much of the role is to try and direct our frontline officers to ensure that they, their inquiries are undertaken uh, as necessarily following the same procedures because wildlife crime is very much, you know, it is a crime like any other and it needs the same investigative procedures, the same forensic analysis, etc. So they're pushing that along, but they're also working in the background to link in with the partner agencies, whether that's, you know, bailiffs on the river, whether that's uh, RSPB, whether it's Scottish Gamekeepers, any of the, the organisations we work alongside. But um, they, they can come into a variety of calls from... Uh, hair coursing to deer poaching to uh, somebody removing wild flowers, to, you know, to the escape of non-native species. So a, a, a day in the life of the wildlife crime officer is, is very varied. Uh, we're going to um, go on now to 
elaborate on actual wildlife crimes because so, as you said it is it is a a vast spectrum and a lot of things that people actually won't really realize is covered onto that but before we do that i think something that's probably quite important to explain and how the interaction works is to talk about paul the the partnership against wildlife crime in scotland the other um agencies which are in other parts of of the uk and how that sort of, how that works who you work with and how that sort of feeds together as a as a an entire unit yeah so Poor originally is a, a UK setup. Uh, in fact, I was at Poor UK meeting yesterday in London on behalf of Police Scotland. But uh, within within Scotland itself, we have replicated that, and it's it's led by the minister, chaired by the minister um, Rosanna Cunningham, um, and uh, it's a collection of organisations who are all, you know, focused on combating wildlife crime. But it includes not just government agencies, so not just the likes of ourselves and Crown Office and Scottish Natural Heritage, but also the likes of RSPB, uh, you know, um, Scottish Countryside Alliance. I know, um, our own Scottish sponsor. Your own organisation, yep, exactly. Scots, yeah. So a wide variety of uh, organisations. And we come together in um, a number of groups, whether it's ones to discuss uh, legislation, whether it's to discuss media approaches, which can be quite interesting meetings, um, whether it's to discuss, we have our own um, poaching priority delivery group up here, cha- chaired by um, uh, a representative of the British Deer Society, and we have our own raptor persecution group up here. The other groups we feed into uh, the UK priority groups for th- uh, themselves, rather than have specific Scottish ones. Um, but Poor is, a, is a, a, a very useful way of, of bringing the, the many different views, some of which can be um, quite different on, on how we atta- uh, tackle wildlife crime. It's very useful to bring them together, um, and it's, it's, it's a way of us trying to develop, as I say, um, preventative strategies, media strategies, that sort of thing. Yeah, it's, it's maybe not realised that you know on on these boards, if you like, there are a lot of uh, what people would class as the shooting or countryside organisations, some of which you listed, and um, uh, yep. SACS, as we mentioned, uh, are one of those. And you're interacting with them all the time, just the same as you're interacting with uh, the likes of the RSPB and, and some of the other charities. We, we, we interact with them with quite a lot, you know, and, and the organisations like your own, as I say, like Basque, uh, are represented on these groups um, because, obviously, a, a lot of wildlife crime is... Um, well, wildlife crime is not just a, a, a rural um, a crime. Let's just put that in, uh, right first, because sometimes people just think about rural wildlife crime and think it happens in the countryside. It can happen anywhere. And I remember one of the first instances when I came into wildlife crime was about deer coursing on um, a golf course in the centre of Glasgow. But, but essentially, um, you know, many of the groups that we represent, rep, that we talk to, represent people from. The, the countryside with a countryside interest so you know GWCT your own organization SGA uh, Basque all, all of these groups and, and as I say they have representatives on a number of these the, the groups within the poor setup and, and it's just a way of bringing together the various uh, viewpoints and it helps us as, as well to get a good understanding and also somewhere for us to somewhere for us to go if we've got a query about a particular practice that we might not have come across which actually might be legal but on first, uh, you know, first view, and you think oh, I'm not quite sure about that. So it's it's a useful useful way for us to to uh, engage with um, uh, countryside organisations. And finally, on, on this aspect, how uh, some people will have heard of the National Wildlife Crime Unit, 
um, they get probably a, a little more um, press time. How does Paul fee- feed into that, and what's your interaction there? Well, the National Wildlife Crime Unit is a, is, is a UK intelligence unit, really, um, which we are lucky enough to have uh, based in Scotland. It was until recently it was in uh, Livingston, and it's re- it's now moved to what was the old Central Scotland Police Headquarters in Stirling, and that unit um, engages with police forces and partner organisations right across the UK. Um, by gathering all the intelligence together and also being um, able to provide um, analysis of uh, trends in wildlife crime and producing packages for us as an investigative organization to take forward. Um, They have a a number of investigative support officers um, who provide support to police forces um, in England and Wales, and we're very lucky that we have one of our own Police Scotland officers who's permanently seconded into the unit and who is uh, dedicated, designated that he can only support Police Scotland. Hmm. Um, and so PC Charlie Everett, who's been uh, working there for some time now, has is, is actually built up an incredible amount of experience in, in a broad range of wildlife crime inquiries. And I would suggest is probably one of the most um, uh, knowledgeable uh, wildlife crime investigators uh, probably in the UK. And we're lucky to have him here in Scotland. That's fantastic. We we wanted to go over. I mean, as you said before, there's a, a huge array of wildlife crime, but we wanted to go over maybe some of the less well known ones uh, and sure. start with bats, for example, because as you said earlier, it's not just rural, and bats are everywhere, and there's a huge amount of protection that goes along with bats. So, if we could just talk about uh, the law involving bats. Yeah, well, bats, bats is a, a something and uh, one that a lot of police officers would never expect to come across, I have to be honest, And when you start your policing career. Um, but yeah, your bats are really they're a, defined as a European protected species in terms of the conservation regulations, 1994. Um, there's, there's nine species in Scotland. And, and really, it becomes an offence to, I think the exact phrase is to deliberately or recklessly capture, injure, or kill a bat. Now, or damage or destroy a roost. So uh, there are a number of instances where that can happen. Probably building developments is, is one. Um, that many people can see bats as an inconvenience if you're undertaking, a, for instance, um, let's say a barn development or mm-hmm. something like that. Mm-hmm. Then you need to initially have a survey undertaken, which um, there, are, there are companies who will do that, but you, you can get a license from Scottish Natural Heritage to allow work to be undertaken. But if you suspect at all that there are bats present in, where you're undertaking work, then you really need to think very carefully uh, before you undertake such work because um, anything that impacts on that bat um, slightly could, in effect, mean that you're uh, committing an offence. So... You know, whether that's occurring, the other instance we have is um, we get often get reports of uh, tree felling. Now, um, this often these are, these are legitimate, but, you know, we do see reports where people will uh, swear blind that they have seen a bat. Um, if they feel like there's some sort of neighbor dispute or something like that, that might be, <laughs> might be resolved as a, re- a result of uh, delaying a 
delaying some sort of tree felling because uh, Scottish natural heritage and ourselves need to go out and make an inquiry. So, okay. that, you know, that's perhaps one of the incidents, the, the, the cases that uh, we often see bat uh, persecution used, um, perhaps not uh, as it should be. So ma- making your job difficult. Make, you can make our job very difficult, yes. Um, so for our listeners, know, don't be using techniques like that. That's an excuse. <laughs> <laughs> It, that's, it's an interesting one, Bats, because it, it's maybe something that a lot of people are not, maybe not even aware of. Uh, and you could very well be committing a crime without necessarily being uh, conscious of the fact that you're doing it. Um, but that's obviously obviously no excuse. So now or at least all of our listeners know anything to do with Bats, you need to get it looked into first. Yeah, absolutely. I think the, the best way to go is, you know, there are a number of uh, bat groups, whether it's the Bat Conservation Trust um, or, or others who will know where bat colonies are in Scotland, um, and they can offer advice. They, I mean, some of these uh, groups now have websites which offer advice as to if you, for instance, if, as I say, if you're undertaking development work on a building, they can t- tell you what you can what to do. But they can also put you in touch with people who are uh, uh, licensed bat workers who can undertake surveys. And, and, and they might be able to say, well, do you know what? There's actually no activity here. So, you know, you, you can carry on as, as, as planned. Or we suggest you get in touch with the Scottish Natural Heritage and they may, depending on the circumstances, issue a license, you know? Mm. Something as well, less, less well known, but uh, very close to home for us, is freshwater pearl mussels. Would you be able to explain why they're so protected? <laughs> right. Yes, freshwater pearl mussels. This is an island in Scotland in a very um, uh, significant place, really, in terms that uh, we have internationally, you know, uh, probably about 40 to 50 percent of the world's population of freshwater pearl mussels. And therefore, you know, there is a, there's a responsibility on, on Scotland to ensure that, uh, that this um, population is maintained. Freshwater pearl mussels are probably a, a good way of um, recognizing if, if a river is polluted because as soon as it becomes polluted, you'll see um, damage to the population. And obviously, any river pollution, etc., also can also impact on salmon fishing, you know, for instance. Um, so, you know, freshwater pearl mussels um, are, 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 are probably one of Scotland's... Um, specific wildlife priorities compared to the rest of the UK, but we're, we're actually quite lucky that it sits within the, the, the six main UK wildlife parent priorities as, 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 a, as a standalone. It's, uh, there are a number of different populations across Scotland. Uh, these are, for good reasons, um, kept quite uh, close to, to the organisations who've got an interest in the, in, in the, the population. So um, whilst we know there are various hotspots um, for where crime has taken place in the past, now that can be because there was historically um, a pearl mussel, a pearl mussel fishing uh, industry, um, uh, probably associated with a number of families in particular who, who still have historical interest in taking these pearl mussels. First, to give you an example, um, a propagated pearl mussel is about... 30 pence in China uh, compared to about 30 pounds for a, a, a one taken probably illegally from the rivers of Scotland. So uh, there's money to be made in pearl mussels, but there's also, as I say, damage that can be caused by, you know, um, hydroelectric schemes that haven't been undertaken, or hydroelectric work that hasn't been undertaken properly, that, that sort of thing, you know. 
So, so what is most of the the crime with re- regard to freshwater pearl mussels? Um, actually, people just Ill- illegally harvesting them. Well, there's, there's, we do get calls about illegal uh, fishing. Um, the difficulty is that the populations are often very remote yeah. in terms of the location. So the the fact is that you may not actually find out about the. <laughs> about the, 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 the poaching or the fishing that's taken place and for, for a considerable period of time after the event, and that can clearly make um, investigation very difficult. Um, there are people who monitor the rivers uh, employed to do so. Um, there's the Pearls in Peril um, uh, c- a campaign. And in fact, this week is actually, um, there is a social media campaign about uh, freshwater pearl mussels. So, um, uh, you may well have, uh, you may well see something if you put pearl, uh, freshwater pearl mussels into uh, the, the internet this week. But um, so there's not just the fishing, but there's also damage caused by, as I say, pollution. So river works, people undertaking works on the river, the bed, uh, or on the bankside, and, and as a consequence of that, you end up with mud, etc., in the river, and. and that will these populations can be affected very very easily by slight impurities in the water. Yeah, and for for people who maybe walk their dogs along uh, rivers that they may not necessarily know there's freshwater pearl mussels in there, but what should they be looking out for uh, to identify possible crimes against uh, freshwater pearl mussels? So the green fish. So it's the actual fishing itself. You'll probably find. Um, the, the shells uh, at the side of the, the river. Now, the, probably one of the, uh, the indicators that has been done illegally is if you see them hidden underneath a bush, for instance, or something like that. Um, if, they're, if they're on the riverbank, um, there's also a possibility, of course, there are other pearl mussels, um, or there are other mussels, rather, in, that, are, that, can, uh, that are not protected. So we have had reports of other type of uh, mussel shells found in freshwater rivers mm-hmm. um, and people which we would encourage obviously people to report uh, because we you know most people will not be able to identify a, a freshwater pearl mussel at the side of the river I certainly couldn't and, and uh, I'm, I'm no expert in, in that area I would need to take somebody as I say from the likes of Scottish Natural Heritage along or from the Pearl, uh, Pearls in Peril um, organization to, to assist with, with that but I think shells at the side of the river uh, a number of them, um, possibly where meat's still within the shell and the actual pearl has been removed. Uh, that, that's the sort of thing. Op- ones that have been opened. That's that's what you'll be looking for. Usually all together in a in a in a you know in a cluster rather than a couple having been picked out by a, a you know a bird or something like that. Yeah. Moving on to something that I, I think quite a few people know about, which is salmon poaching. And I remember this must be going back 10, no, oh, about longer than that, 15 years now. The police arriving at the field next to... Probably 20 uh, years 20 years, I, 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 I'm getting on now. Uh, the police arriving because there's people poaching on the river next to my parents' house. And I remember the police chasing across the field. And then this was a long time ago. So, you know, it's yep. middle of the night. Middle of the night. Um, is this something that we're seeing more of? I don't. I don't know if we're seeing more of it. I would say it's probably our um, most prevalent wildlife crime. Um, it's probably the one uh, that is easiest to actually catch people in the act because you know they may well be standing at the side of the river, and there are lots of other people who are out there fishing legitimately who will see these people. Uh, some of the other crimes happen, 
in remote locations. Um, you know, whereas you know people who fish legitimately, whether it's from you know um, from as a landowner or you know from from a, an association, will know who has permission to be there. So it's a one where we do tend to catch more people in the act than uh, in other areas of wildlife crime. But I don't necessarily think it is something that we're seeing an increase in. Um, perhaps, you know, any increase that we do see, it may well just be the fact that, you know, we're, people are more encouraged to report these incidents. And it's something, you know, that um, we try to work with the local uh, bailiffs, etc., through our particular our full-time wildlife crime officers who will go out and do joint patrols, etc. So, you know, we do that with up in the, the Fourth Valley area. We we do that up in Tayside as well, and 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 regularly in, in areas up in the, in Northeast Division, up in Aberdeenshire. Mm. But there's, uh, what about on a sort of industrial level of poaching? I think the the, the anecdote that uh, my brother was giving was they'd actually been either netting it yeah, or I think poisoning they were, I think they were the river in yeah. some in some yeah. way. I'm not. I mean, it was a very long time ago. Is that something that's still going on to any great extent? Um, it's very difficult to say. We don't seem to receive many calls about uh, significant netting incidents. Um, I, I, you know, obviously we get occasional calls in about it, um, but I'd have to be honest and say we don't. It's usually, um, you know, people with rod and line mm-hmm. rather than netting. Okay. I mean that that's good because so, it can be devastating to a river. Uh, I know well, that in know, the past anybody, it used to go. If anybody uh, who who hears this feels that they you know there's something they would like to tell us, then you know I would be more than well their information would be more than welcome. I have to say that. You know. mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, in, in, I, I assumed that it would still be a lot going more. on a little bit. Yeah, I I know that in the you know in decades gone by it was a massive problem, but it's obviously something that is is not as big as it used to be, which is great. Yeah, I, I don't I don't get me wrong. I don't think it's disappeared completely. Mm. I think it's still happening out there, and we do get some intelligence in about it. But I don't necessarily think it's um, the, the the major part of. Uh, salmon poaching, for instance, that we, that, that we hear about. The, the, the significant issues we are hearing about are our rod and line, really. Which, you know? make, which makes it a little bit harder, actually. Yeah, because one fisherman can look a little bit like another fisherman unless you check his permit, yeah. I suppose. Yeah. Well, yeah, but, it, you know, um, I think the fact that, you know, having a permit, you know, or having a system like that does, in a way, make it easier for us to actually approach somebody and of find course. out. You know, yeah, and, and as I say, there are people out there, there are bailiffs out there who... Who are you know will phone in and let us know, mm-hmm. you know, um, and you're going to have to be by a river. It, it, so it's it's you know a lot of other types of wildlife crime can happen just about anywhere in the countryside, but you know you you're, you're going to have to find these people next to a river. So it does make it does make life easier for able to able to target uh, specific locations. Just just to put it in context for people, because it, it may seem a little trivial to some people, you know, so what? I was fishing on a bit of river that I didn't have permission and I got caught. But I mean, what is the penalty? You you are proven to have been fishing for salmon because I know that there there is a difference between fishing for salmon and and uh, fishing for trout. You're proven to be fishing for salmon somewhere you didn't have permission. What are the potential penalties for somebody who's been doing that? Well, you know, um, I think uh, just to, keep, to take the first point, you know, uh, uh, effectively, uh, apart from the sort of damage to the local uh, ecosystem, you know, if, if people are if areas are overfished. There's also, you know, the fact that effectively you're, 
you know, you're, you're stealing from from the from the other people who've who have paid to, <laughs> to undertake fishing right. activity. You know, um, so it's I wouldn't say necessarily that it's uh, it's trivial. It's a, it's a wildlife crime like like any other, and it'll be given the same sort of attention that um, that uh, we, we give to other to other wildlife crimes. Sure. Um, you know, I think um, in terms of the penalties. That's very much one that uh, you would need, in terms of what's given out, you would need to um, get views from our Crown Office colleagues uh, because what's available and what actually what penalties are actually uh, given out by the courts are, are two different things, okay. you know. Um, one of the things that I can say, though, is that where we can catch more than one person, so it's two people, that's actually classed, any two or more people are actually classed as gang poaching, and the penalties for that are actually greater than they are, um, you know, for, for, for an individual oh, uh, undertaking okay. a poaching activity. And that's something that we're always conscious of and that we try to say to police officers, if you see more than one person, you know, then uh, make sure it goes in as a gang poaching charge, and then uh, that lets Crown, Crown Office take that forward. But... Um, you know, wildlife crime penalties, unfortunately, have, have not, as, as the recent review of uh, penalties noted, have not perhaps followed some of the environmental crime um, penalties in, mm -hmm. in terms of uh, over the last sort of 10, 15 years. And, and there certainly is, that's an area that is uh, a report that's with Scottish Government, um, uh, and it's something that will need to be addressed perhaps over the, 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 the new parliament. I guess if uh, if the penalties are very severe, people might definitely think twice about it. Well, you would like to think so. As I say, what the, the, there was a wildlife a poor. We've mentioned poor previously. There was a poor group tasked with looking at uh, wildlife crime penalties, um, and you know the, the sort of recommendations that came out of that were that, as I say, that the wildlife crime penalties in general had, had stood still. Um, and so uh, there was a there's definite need to to revisit the area and and look because, as I say that the you know you can find for instance just to go back to freshwater pearl mussels that the penalties for the environmental pollution side of an offence are far greater for, than for actually killing the, the freshwater pearl mussels. So um, you know and where and the actual environmental side was you know the impact on the freshwater pearl mussels, but. Um, it's unfortunate that for actually killing them, you would you would find a, a lesser penalty than you would for actually polluting the river in the first place. This this was actually taken from the the Police Scotland website for um, freshwater pear mussels. For each one taken or injured, a fine not exceeding five thousand pounds or six months custody yeah. may apply. Yeah. I mean that is quite significant. Yeah, I would say <laughs> that is the penalty. That's the penalty as as laid down. But it you might know, not be when that goes to court. Whether that whether that happens in, um, when the sheriff makes a decision is, is a different matter. Um, what you can find is that you know the environmental side of that, the, the penalty can be sort of up to forty thousand pounds or something oh, like wow. that. You know, okay. far greater. Mm -hmm. um, so the penalty for actually um, the penalties for actually the wildlife crime, as I say, have not perhaps uh, gone forward as they should have gone forward in the last few years but maybe we'll see some movement on that in the future oh right, we'll keep certainly keep an eye out for that yeah moving on to badges it's yeah. an, an, this is a common one i think yeah. everyone will probably have heard about um issues with wildlife regarding badges and 
I mean, badges, they seem to be in the press in they, some they description because yeah. we had, obviously, the legal culling of badges down mm-hmm. south. Yeah. Um, so it's, uh, it's an interesting one, and one that you would think in a sort of a modern age that there wouldn't be that kind of thing going on anymore. In terms of badger persecution? Badger baiting yeah. and badger persecution. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, unfortunately, it still does. Um, you know, we have limited reporting in, in Scotland of, of badger persecution, um, but, you know, it's, it covers a, you know, badger baiting is only one aspect of that um, because, uh, the, the, you know, there are other things. Again, we've, we've talked about illegal tree felling, et cetera. There's, there's in, works that impact on badger sets because the, the badger set is actually protected as well as the badger. Um, and that's something that's worth worth bearing in mind. But, you know, we we get limited reporting but any you know it's a very cruel activity um and undoubtedly the people involved in this are involved in other forms of criminality as well uh historically that's been shown um and you know again if anybody is listening to this i would encourage them to phone us and, and tell us about it because um it's something that we would like to um perhaps make some inroads to it if it is if it is far greater than than, than the levels being reported would you be able to maybe just explain what badger baiting actually is for people that don't know? Well, effectively, what you'll what you'll find is that um, someone will uh, send a dog underground, probably uh, with a tracking device on into a known badger set. Um, once they once they've located the badger, the tracking device will, will allow the, the the people on the surface to, to be able to tell where the dog is and, and hence where the, the, the badger is. They'll probably dig a hole uh, down towards that, pull their own dog out, which is, may well have had severe injuries inflicted because badgers have extremely sharp claws, huge things, um, and also, you know, a, a large jaw as well, which could inflict some damage. Um, you'll then find that um, once they've located the badger, it may well be either through in a pit, or they may remove the badger, but most likely within a pit, they'll then put another dog in, and uh, people stand and watch these these animals fighting. And that's what happens, and it's a a very uh, vicious and and cruel. And, 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 you know, at one time, probably, you know, hundreds of years ago, seen as legitimate, but, you know, obviously in modern-day standards, it's... uh, it's something that um that we cannot we can't tolerate you know and uh, it's uh what you have is it's not just cruel to the badgers obviously but it's cruel to the dogs that are put in there to fight with the with these with these badgers as well you know and the the um inroads that you do make to try and find these crimes and solve these crimes and persecute um and pro- sorry po- prosecute uh, people who are doing this where does that tend to come from? Is it sort of vets fixing up dogs? Is it people seeing lights out at night in places that they know there's badger sets? Because I can imagine, well, as you probably you, you alluded to um, just a little bit ago, it's quite a difficult crime to get on top of because the people doing it aren't going to talk about it, and it's happening, you know, in a woods somewhere where there's probably no one walking around in the middle of the night. Do you know there are a variety of sources? Yes, you, you highlight one is vets, but I would many of the people involved in this. Uh, either don't take the dog to a vet or take it take it to take it to a vet um, only at the very 
very last minute, you know, and perhaps don't provide the details that they, that they would the legitimate details of their of their own. Um, but I would suggest, you know, a lot of the dogs that are that are involved are not taken to to a vet for medical attention. So limited information is going to come through there. Um, many of these people are actually quite willing to boast on social media about their involvement in these really? sort of activities. Um, and and, I, and when I say many, I'm talking about incidents that I've been made aware of from across the UK, so yeah. not just in Scotland. Yeah. Um, uh, so you get that sort of that, that, that sort of intelligence that might come in. And, but yes, people walking into the into woods near known badger sets with the shovel and the dogs, you know that sort of thing. All, all of that information from the public obviously is vital for this in this sort of inquiry. Um, but it comes from a variety a variety of sources. But you know, a lot of these people do like to boast about their act, their involvement in this sort of incredible. Sort of See, that, that just that just seems, especially the way you know online social media is now. Yep. It just seems utterly stupid. But then I guess you have to be has to be something a little bit uh, detached with you to be involved in such activities in the first yep. place. But... Yeah. Well, you'd be surprised. I mean, even going back to um, even going back to bats, people will post all sorts of things about bats you know have just found this in my living room and killed it you know (laughs) that's the type of inquiry you know you will get and then you've got then we then have to try and uh see if we can pull anything down off the internet to actually establish who it is because some of these these accounts are are almost anonymous but people Mm. will post things like that you know for a variety of wildlife crimes as a matter of interest uh... If you, because it does happen from time to time where a bat, you hear of it, a bat flies into someone's living room or whatever, especially in the summer yep. when the windows open. Are you able to catch that I've bat had that and chuck it out? Oh, <laughs> oh, right. Okay. So are you able to catch that bat and put it back outside or are you not even allowed to touch it? What's you know, the um, I, I, you know it's a, that's a very difficult question. I mean, I think the best thing is to try and, and just almost encourage that that to leave, oh, yeah. uh, you know, by through the window itself. I mean, that's that's what we had to do: close the doors and try and get it to to to, to leave out, leave it. So what what you can't do is you you cannot kill kill the bat because sure. it will have the misfortune to fly into your house. You know, poor thing. <laughs> that's a bit <laughs> or, cruel. Or tent or whatever. Yeah. You know. Yeah, don't swat a bat because it'll come into your house. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Or... Well, you'd be surprised. Uh, <laughs> we've had we've had things like that reported to us. You know, um, but. Uh, yeah, you know, I think you've got to take a reasonable, you know, uh, action to try and get the thing, the yeah, thing out. Back um, out where it belongs. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm aware of people who've, who've maybe, you know, tried to 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 catch things in in almost in a in a bin bag or something like that, but to release it very quickly. I think it just all depends on the circumstances. But at the end of the day, you know, the welfare of the bats is the most important thing here. Absolutely, yeah. You know? Basically, if you're not sure, you need to call someone. <laughs> well, you, you can, yeah. And again, you know, uh, some of these websites for the likes of the Bat Conservation Trust, etc., uh, have advice on what to do if a bat gets into your house. And I know it's probably not the thing you're thinking of as the bats, as bats flying around, but uh, there are places to find advice on that. Now, moving on to... Uh, deer poaching and hair coursing, which actually kind of slots quite well into talking about social media because it's something that I've seen on social media a lot more people talking about it, as in people talking about I've caught someone or I've seen this happen, um, and so on, so on. And so, especially with uh, hair, hair, hair coursing, coursing in, in particular. Fact, just, yeah. I think it's probably six months ago now. Myself and a shooting friend of mine, we were en route to go out stalking. I think. 
and we saw a, a car on the side with two guys hurrying dogs across a field, which I knew they had. Well, I knew that the people, irrespective of what they were doing, had no permission to be there. And we drove on past and ended up, uh, you know, calling the police and informing it. But the, as the farmer was coming out the gate, because he had heard that there was um, people hair coursing on on his ground, it's something that certainly where we are on the on the east coast here, we do see from time yeah. to time, especially at certain times of year. Is it how? What does the landscape look like across Scotland? And well, let's take hair coursing as a as a, as a first point. Yeah, I mean, I think hair coursing is is very much you know uh, an east coast crime. Um, you have the sort of the main arterial routes up there, and the, the sort of flat landscape as well, which makes it a lot easier for this to take place. Um, it is something we get a number of reports about. We have had some success, which has been reported in the press as well. Um, uh, but, you know, one of the excuses you'll often get is, well, I'm just out walking my dog. Well, you know, some, you haven't traveled 100 miles to go and take your dog for a walk. Um, and whilst you know that and I know that, actually putting that together uh, to take to a to, to court as a part of an investigation is not as perhaps straightforward as it seems at the time. Okay. Um, but, you know, one of the things where it, perhaps we catch it, we catch uh, somebody actually in the act and they have their dogs and there's that we find much to find a hair, we can use the type of techniques that you would use in, in a lot of other non-related wildlife crime investigations such as DNA testing. And, and that has been done very successfully through our colleagues at uh, SASA um, who are able to, you know, from a swab from the dog and a swab from the, the hair, um, you know, identify that um, those, two, those two have been connected in some way. And that makes it an investigation and a case submitted to Crown Office, uh, you know, far easier and hopefully with a great more uh, deal of success than, 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 than we had previously. So DNA is something that's uh, particularly useful in this, this type of wildlife crime inquiry. No, actually, I, I, I read that um, press release that went out a number of months ago explaining exactly what you just said, where yep. there was a, um, some people who had been hair coursing, and that is exactly how they'd been caught, because they matched the DNA from the hair that was in their van to the, the dog. or it, it was, There was some connection like that via DNA. And it's amazing yep. that you know, that level of, uh, sort of forensic inquiry, which only 20 years ago would have only been for sort of very uh, high-profile high profile crimes is being brought through into to wildlife crime, and I think on quite a regular basis for all sorts of wildlife crime, if I'm not mistaken. It, it's, it, you're absolutely right. I mean, we've had um, you know, DNA used in deer poaching uh, cases uh, up in, in the northwest of Scotland. We've used it successfully in a court case there. And which was the first time it had been used. And a lot of that's down to the development work that's undertaken by SASA. And Police Scotland now has a, our own single point of contact who works closely from our forensic side, who works very closely with uh, the scientists at SASA uh, to make sure that the techniques that we've got in Police Scotland can be used in wildlife crime investigation and that we're aware of the developments they're undertaking as well. And, and, and we, we make sure that that's disseminated to our frontline officers. But poor, just to give you, a, you know, going back to, to poor again, um, poor produced in, in conjunction with other, uh, other organizations um, through the forensic working group, a wildlife crime forensic guide. And that, that's available to all of our officers online through the, through the Peace Scotland intranet and, and also uh, in hard copy as well for, for, for a considerable number of officers. And that's a, 
that's a booklet of about 100 pages uh, in thickness, which which goes into all the different forensic techniques, which many of them are, are just the ones you would use every day as part of a normal police investigation into non-related wildlife crime, but which you know people have not necessarily thought was um, something that they could that that first comes to mind when they're when they they're, they're called to say as I say a, a deer poaching um, case or a, or a hare coursing po- case. So we've got there is a this, the forensic working group from Poor and Police Scotland linked closely into that, um, just to make sure that all the techniques that, um, as I say, are, are used in, in non wildlife crime cases are used in in, in uh, wildlife crime cases as well. Mm. I, w- I was very impressed by the the quick response time of the police that came out when uh, we had the well, hair coursing. It was yeah, no, it was it was incredibly incredibly fast considering where, I know where they had come from. Um, if you if people do see something which they think is potentially hair coursing, I mean, maybe qu- you should explain what hair coursing actually yeah. is, so people know what it is to begin with. Okay, yeah, let I'll let you fire out, uh, fire away with that, Andy, first, and then I'll, I'll ask well, you. Well, yeah, I mean, effectively, what you get there is, I mean, this was and, until you know not that long ago um, a legitimate sport, and it still is in the in the Republic of Ireland. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. uh, was seen as a sport and. Um, you know, effectively, what you have is the hare, two, at least one dog, two, two, sorry, at least two dogs, possibly more. They're, they're basically set after the hare, and it's, a, it's it's basically a race to see which dog can get to the hare first. You know, and one of the things that you get is not just about the, the, the coolness of I've got the fastest dog, but there's also money exchanged as well, you know, and that's why people will travel a great distance. And you'll get people who have seen this as something that they've been allowed to undertake as a sport and their, 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 their family before them and the family before that were as well. And it's very much a traditional sport with, a, with, some, with some individuals um, who still see it as legitimate, uh, despite the fact that it was made illegal uh, uh, a number of years ago now. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's effectively what you're talking about is, uh, you know, two, anim- two dogs um, or minimum two dogs being, uh, you know, um, set, you know, to, to race after after a hair. You know? Yeah, it's 1981. According to this, it was illegal. So well, it's uh, yeah. So you know, I know, and but for some people, 1981 is just yesterday. Yeah. You know, <laughs> it, 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 to them, as I say, and the fact that in certain certain countries it's still legal, it's, it's yeah, yeah. To them, it's a, it's, it's, a right, uh, it's, it's a something right that they them. really don't mm. recognise. Mm. It's it should be, it's probably worth pointing out as well that even when it was legal. There was a lot of hair coursing going on without permission, which was still. Well, of course, illegal. that's the other thing as well. You know, um, you know, often you'll hear people saying that. Well, actually, I'm I'm only setting my dog on on rabbits, and uh, but you know, even then, that comes down to the permission of the landowner, mm-hmm. um, and you know, with, as you say, the landowner is not giving permission for these people to undertake this act. So, you know, it's 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 not an excuse, but it's one that we hear often. What, uh, just briefly, what, and this was the, the question that I was uh, going to, was that if people do see an activity which they think might be hair, hair coursing, what should they do? Because without wanting to be too broad with it, it, you don't really want to entangle yourself with because quite often it can be fairly unsavory characters from my own experience. Of, no, uh, I think you're quite right. It can. Uh, again, it's, it's like other areas of wildlife crime. It's people who are involved in other forms of criminality as well as wildlife crime. So, yeah, you you do not want to to, to become involved. If, but uh, what I would suggest is that you know you you uh, phone police, you play phone police Scotland either on one hundred one uh, or you know you you can um, if you don't want to do it straight away, you you 
you can make a note of it and uh, you can let us know you know after the event um and we can then perhaps uh, make a note of the location and and, and follow it up as perhaps because undoubtedly people will reattend in the future um or if you think it's so urgent that you, you feel you want to dial 999 because it is an emergency and there's damage being caused or you're being threatened etc and you know please do that you know and in terms of deer there are instances of people actually running dogs on deer which is obviously a deer poaching and also comes yep. under coursing but yep. there the the extension of that is also poaching of deer generally speaking which could be at night illegal it could be a, a, a day um during the daytime illegally what what do you find is the are, are the main causes of poaching for for deer? For deer, well, again, you know, it it, it does depend because some of the individuals who are involved in hair coursing, yes, as you as you say, are, are also involved in deer coursing, and that's maybe one that we get more in a, in a urban environment, well, or sort of in the semi semi urban semi rural environment. We'll we'll find that, but as I think I alluded to at the very beginning. You know, we had, um, uh, I remember, uh, you know, deer coursing on a golf course in the centre of Glasgow. Yeah. And, and so, you know, that, that's got a full page spread in the, in the even paper here. But there are other, there, you know, there is the shooting of deer, etc. The actual poach, traditional poaching, as you and I would probably think of it, where, you know, the deer is shot and it's it's basically for the for the meat. But mm-hmm. uh, at the end of the day, that that's illegal venison not killed properly you know the food hygiene standards not up to scratch and that could be entering the uh, the food chain and you know uh, there could be catastrophic results as a uh, as a consequence and that that's something that that we are aware of and that you know we work with Scottish Natural Heritage in terms of looking at venison dealers licenses and things like that to make sure that the deer that is coming into the the food chain has been shot legitimately um, and, and isn't the result of uh, illegal poaching, you know? Mm-hmm. Moving on to probably one of the largest topics that comes across our our show all time, which is birds of prey persecution. Yeah. Um, what is the protection status of, of raptors to begin with? Well, you know, I think it depends, doesn't it? You know, wild birds are all protected, and obviously some are more protected than others, and it just depends. So, you know, you know, whilst all all wild birds are protected, golden eagles are are, are more protected than you know your sort of common house sparrow, etc. Mm-hmm. Um, but some of these birds are also you know iconic symbols in terms of Scotland as well, and you know anything that's going to result in in the killing of of one of these, for instance, is also damaging to Scotland reputation and not just you know internationally as well and and that's something that we need to take into account Uh, you know we want people to be coming to scotland for um to see the wildlife crime not to know scotland because uh, you know a result of uh, people committing wildlife crime so you know the the birds are the you know certain birds are protected are more protected than others and certain raptors are more protected than others just depending on um on the on the species but at the end of the day, you know, there, 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 there's no excuse uh, for for killing them in in the first place. So, you know, the level of protection, um, really, in a way, is almost irrelevant to be yeah. honest. Um, uh, but, uh, you know, it it just depends. But I mean, it's the, the simple the simple thing is that it's an offence to intentionally or recklessly kill, uh, injure, uh, or take a wild bird, and that that's the main that's the main offence. Um, when you get down to Specific uh, protection for for uh, certain raptors. Um, 
well, you know, we've already gone beyond the, the initial crime that's been committed, which was the killing of the bird in the first place. Sure. Well, uh, sorry, no, I was just going to say, there's loads of different forms that uh, persecution of, of raptors particularly comes yeah. in. Uh, would you be able to just go over some some of them? You know, well, some of the things we've seen are, you know, we, there are shooting, obviously, um, yeah. is, is perhaps is one of the, the main areas. You know, we have, you will get poisoning, um, and there are a number of different poisons that have been used. I think carbofurin, which is a banned poison, is perhaps perhaps the one that's most commonly known. Um, uh, and so obviously, hope, we would like to think that there's there's very little of that still out there following the, the, the sort of government-run uh, pesticide disposal scheme, uh, which, was, which was last year. Um, we have people who will deliberately set uh, what should be legitimate traps out uh, on, say, um, posts in the in- with the intention of, you know, this is where a bird of prey would traditionally stop and therefore land. And then and then what you do is you put your, you, they put a trap on there, knowing fine well that uh, the bird will land on it. And now that may be as a result, the bird comes down as a result of um, some sort of bait being put out, and not necessarily a poison one, just but just uh, uh, whether that's a dead rabbit or something like that. So there are there are shooting, there's poisoning, there's uh, illegal trapping, but it also comes into there may well be disturbance of a nesting site, which means that you can end up with um, birds failing to breed, and all of that obviously is a raptor persecution as well. Mm-hmm. Now, when we see it in in the media quite a lot, because it's always very well covered, if there is an instance, or even if there's not actually something that's been proven, uh, but even speculation that there, there's issues with birds disappearing, for example, which has happened uh, recently, and it it seems certainly from from where I'm standing that it's in the in the media it seems slightly disproportionate to. The amount of crimes. I mean, what is the sort of the sort of trend? Are we seeing a lot? It feels like I, I know in the last year, it feels like there's been loads, loads more this more, year yeah. than there has been. But that could very well be because of the way that the media have reported it. Are we seeing a, a load more, or have things actually got um, a lot better over a period of time? You know, it's it's difficult because you know, in in the terms of um, when we talk about wildlife crime, we're really we're talking about. Um, probably, you know, in, in the grand scheme of things, relatively low levels of crime compared to, say, domestic abuse. Sure. You know, so it's very difficult to compare, uh, you know, the, the levels of the levels of crime. But And, and then again, and then, you know, raptor persecution is only one aspect of wildlife crime. So we're talking about relatively low numbers, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, however, and those numbers can fluctuate, you know, it, depending on what people come across when they're out walking or they're out in the countryside, they're out doing their, their work or whatever, they may well come across something or they may not come across something just they took a different route. So, and, you know, the fact that somebody walked one way or drove one way means that they'll find a bird of prey and, and if they'd gone another way, they wouldn't have found that. And, and when you're talking small figures, uh, you obviously, you know, slight changes like that, you know, have a, a huge yeah. percentage uh, impact, you know, in terms of what, what can be reported. So, I think, you know, the statistics tend to suggest that there's no dramatic increase. There's no significant decrease either. We're fairly, we fluctuate slightly, and it's fairly static. But the point is that, you know, at the end of the day, there still really is no reason for these birds to be killed in the mm-hmm. first place. Um, there's certainly a 
significant amount of media coverage, so you will find that incidents of raptor persecution are, are heavily covered in the press. Um, um, and obviously, you, you know, um, it's uh, it's something that Peace Scotland obviously takes seriously as, as well. And, you know, as as do, you know, not just the conservation groups, but also the land management groups, because Absolutely. I think as you're probably aware that, you know, it's all too often that, um, you know, that, 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 that what you find is land management groups having to defend their position. And, and uh, you know, we have some very helpful land management groups out there who've worked on, you know, hen harry action plans, etc. Mm-hmm. But, you know, like like any, anything, you know, it, it can only take one or two individuals, to, you know, um, to to sort of cast a shadow over a whole, over, over a whole area, you know. Absolutely, I, I know. For for example, um, and it might be just worth um, speaking about this just for a moment, is yep. that the the heads up for for Harriers project. There are a yep. number of shooting estates, and I think that's increased this year. Who are working on that in collaboration yep. with everybody that we've been talking about to to make sure that this kind of thing doesn't go on, and even further than that actually aid with a lot of monitoring and protection of, of, of yeah. birds from, from other predators and, and work out uh, predators that are, can be legally controlled, that is, uh, and yeah. work out what's happening to these populations. Yeah, and, and you know, as, as we've talked about right at the very beginning, the likes of your own organization and, and various other ones are all members of poor where we all t- come together and, you know, and we all discuss ways of how we can take that message back that, you know, it's totally unacceptable for this for this sort of thing to happen. But, um you know, it will, it will, it does happen. It shouldn't happen, but it does. Um, and we can only work together to try and, uh, and trying to, to reduce the numbers in the future. Still sticking with birds, but something which was done a huge amount, uh, not that far in the in the distant past. I actually mm. saw it down south. Uh, I know what you're talking about egg collecting, yeah. and wasn't a and no, massive no. horde just found down From south in, in Devon? Yeah, I, think yeah. It was. I was actually just going to yeah. bring that up. I think he was, I think I'm, I'm sure, I have, yeah, 73-year-old man. He was caught with 435 eggs from um, species that you can't collect eggs from. Egg collecting was a massive thing uh, in decades gone by where it was actually legal to do. It's it's not legal anymore. But can you just explain, you know, what you can, what you can't take, how, what's happened to the egg collectors of old and, and uh, the old collections that, that existed and, and what happens today if you're taking uh, eggs from species that uh, it's illegal to do so well obviously yeah i mean it's it, it is it is illegal yes to take the, the eggs from the wild from wild birds you know unless you do it under license etc uh, which can happen you know for certain goals uh, for, for health and safety reasons etc um for very you know but, but in general the general uh, rule is that the taking of eggs from wild birds is illegal mm-hmm. um the case you're referring to actually obviously has a has a Scottish link because the same individual was caught up in uh, one of our islands. He was, up, yeah, <laughs> up north, and that's how it originally came came to the attention of. Uh, and we, through the National Wildlife Crime Unit that we referred to already, through our work with them, we were able to link in with uh, the, the sort of Devon and Cornwall Police, or Devon and Cornwall Constabulary, I think it is, and um, they were able to then undertake a search under warrant of the of the. Uh, uh, well, what was I was going to say? The suspect, but he was an accused because he was dealt with very quickly up uh, up here in Scotland. Um, he was then the house was searched and all these eggs were found. But I mean, what happened was when the a member of the public saw this individual uh, in in the north of Scotland acting suspiciously, called the police. 
we turned up, searched this car, and found and found uh, eggs that had been illegally taken. Now, we're not receiving as many reports as we used to. Um, we still undertake what's called Operation Easter every year, which is a UK operation run through the National Wildlife Crime Unit. It was originally through Police Scotland, uh, well, the forces prior to Police Scotland. It's now run through the National Wildlife Crime Unit, in which information is circulated across the country about known uh, egg, egg thieves, and um, we essentially are raising awareness with the police officers in in the areas that where uh, egg theft has occurred, just to highlight, you know, vehicles, people who may well be involved in in this sort of activity. So that's that's a, probably like a good example of how we link in with the National Wildlife Crime Unit, um, and then you know not just in terms of say of Operation Easter, but also in terms of a specific individual who was arrested up north. Uh, who we were then able to link in with our colleagues and use one of the investigative support officers from from the National Wildlife Crime Unit, along with colleagues in England uh, and in the southwest of England, to to undertake a search and even more came to light. But what's happened to the collections? I think you mentioned at the beginning. Yeah, uh, very went difficult to, the, to say. You know, I could very have I could have sworn I said that um, his collection got given to the the Natural History oh. Museum. Was it? Well, that's what we tend to do. What, what we always tend to do with something like that is to try and use, whether it's the National Museum of Scotland or, or, or whether it's the National History Museum, is to uh, try and use anything like that that's taken to get a forfeiture and, and then it can be used, um, you know, so that other people, you know, that there will be some benefit from this, what, have, what has been a criminal activity, you know? And so it goes, yeah. You, sorry, sorry. So I was just going to say it's incredible that, so this all started from a member of the public... Yep. phoning in Scotland, and all this came to light down in the very bottom of England. About a person that we had no idea about, yeah. <laughs> it just shows you that if you th- if you think there's there's something not right, you might be right, and you should yep. probably just tell yep. someone. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely, and I'm sure that day when the police officers started on duty, they never dreamt they'd be involved in something that would probably, Country you know, wide. first of all, they've probably never been involved in, a, in an egg theft case before, um, so then they, they, they immediately have to get in touch with uh, locally, you know, with, with either the National Wildlife Crime or one of our full-time wildlife crime liaison officers up here who can offer advice. Um, and then, you know, they're undertaking a search for something that they probably, again, they've never dealt with before. And, and, and I can only emphasize this as well, that wildlife crime covers so many things, as I say, from the theft of um, wild flowers to the escape of raccoons to prairie dogs, you know, to... You know, um, people with on uh, jet skis near, uh, you know, a dolphin or something like that. It's such a broad area that, you know, even as an, for an experienced wildlife crime investigator, you may well come across something unique, you know, at least once a month. You know, just going back to that that case I'm, and talking about the techniques that were used, I remember just reading something um, about he'd falsified some of the dates in his logs. Uh, to make the eggs look a lot older than they were, to, then I'm assuming make it legal to have because they're prior to the date that it would have been made illegal. Um, and they used forensics techniques to figure out that he'd done this. Yeah, you can pretty much, you know, he. It's, I think these days with the uh, the forensic techniques that we've got, as I say, through the likes of our colleagues and Sasa, but also through some of our experts, let's say, for instance, the uh, National Museum of Scotland, we we can. Um, we can date things very, very quickly. Um, um, and so, you know, altering your log it is going to make little impact. But um, there's, not a, there's not a great deal 
of um, one time. Whereas we've talked about um, uh, the level of sort of social media activity for certain wildlife crimes, I have to say we don't seem to see a great deal of activity uh, with regards to um, egg theft, etc. But you know, um, it's something that seems to be kept very much for their own personal enjoyment, as it were. Mm. You know, I was just going to ask you collection. that. Actually. So it's got nothing really to do with money. It's just their own pleasure of collecting eggs. No, I think, you know, I think, yeah, I mean, for, for maybe for some one or two uh, collectors, there is, the, 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 you know, the, the, there is some monetary value to, to these things um, and they may well be traded. But really, for the, my understanding is that for the majority, it's about personal pride for of a better description in their in their actual collection, which is then hidden away, you know, either in a loft or false drawer or something like that, you know. Um, one of the last things I just wanted to touch on because it it, it might seem a strange thing to class as a wildlife crime um, to some people, which is uh, non-native species introduction. So maybe yep. you can just explain the kind of species that you might commonly encounter. You did actually mention a couple about 10 minutes ago. Uh, and But why that's such a big deal and why it's a, a problem? Well, you know, obviously, you know, any more often than not, the reason these species are non-native is, um, you know, or the, the reason that there's an issue here is that these species are non-native for, an issue, for, for, for a reason and the fact that um, they will have an impact on the local ecosystem, you know. Um, and that's something where you know we're, we're keen to avoid. Um, so you know we have issues with prairie dogs, etc., that have been have escaped from private collections. We have issues with um, you know raccoons that have escaped. But uh, you know we've got we've got wild boar that you know may, you can have animals. The other thing about non-natives is that they may well at one time have been native. But it's so long ago that the you know the situation has now changed, and that that's um, and so if, if I give you an example of non-native species, um, everybody would probably think of beavers, and yet we've seen beavers introduced into Scotland now, mm-hmm. and so it'll be interesting to see what happens in terms of uh, legislation and what protection that's actually afforded to them now. Um, but the, but you know the main it's not just about animals; it's about uh, plants as well. Um, so, you know, uh, Japanese knotweed, that sort of thing, which can have a huge impact on, um, you know, uh, the, the, the foundations of buildings, etc. Uh, spreads rapidly. All of these sort of things. Um, these are the type of non-natives that, that we are dealing with. And again, you know, probably something that you wouldn't think uh, your, your police officers are dealing with uh, when, you, when, they, when they go on, go on duty every day. So it's it's important for for people at home to realize that you can't just bring <laughs> seeds or other nope. or nope. animals or even or even animals that you maybe be able to buy through some sort of pet store. You can't just release them into. No, the wild. you can't. You know, and um, you know, there's there's there are issues with uh, American signal crayfish. Of course, yeah. Uh, yep. Yep. Uh, which is another one which, um, you know, they have a huge. They just, you know, very breed very quickly obliterate everything else um, and can have an impact on, you know, on, on, on legitimate uh, angling, you yeah. know, um, if they're wiping out everything else in the, in the, in the river. Um, so, the, the, again, and, and another thing that, that uh, just to go talk about them is that they can burrow into, into sides of the, of the riverbank, causing that to collapse. So, you know, there's, 
there's all sorts of there's all sorts of issues with these things um but you just can't simply release into a, into a river or you know or into the countryside um something like as you say you bought you brought in uh, bought in a in a pet shop and it's similar uh, with the seeds as well you know um there are a number of things we now you know we're now trying to control or people are, you'll see uh, controlled um destruction of perhaps rhododendrons that sort of thing that originally were brought over you know because uh, people wanted to to make their their, their garden look uh, different hundreds of years ago and now just grow and grow and grow and that's the situation we've got with uh, as i say japanese knotweed etc which gets right under the foundations of houses and um uh, can create all sorts of problems. The issue, the issue with that, of course, is that it only becomes an offence if you're allowed to grow in the wild, uh, not in your back garden. Yeah. So, uh, you know, that's something that we some, often have a difficulty in explaining to, to people who phone us up and say, uh, my next-door neighbour's got this. Well, unfortunately, that's actually not uh, for the police to deal with, you know. But, um, you know, I think the, the main thing we're talking about here is, is the likes of... Um, you know, prairie dogs that are released, raccoons or, or, or various other things. Um, you know, and the old one that we hear about constantly is the, the big cats and the, the sightings of big cats in the countryside, which yeah. we've never actually found. But, you know, who knows? It could well be somebody. There is something out there and it's been uh, it's been released by, by a member of the public who no longer wants to, to keep it in captivity. Well, there was that, there was that zoo, wasn't it, that, that yeah. they actually admitted to releasing... Um, some big cats back in the 70s. Was it the 70s or the 80s? Down south. Yeah. Um, when we always see these reports, you know, there's always at, there's always at least a couple of reports of, of big cats in the, uh, having been sighted at some, in some parts of Scotland over the years, you know. And, there's uh, been nothing ever proven, has there? No one's ever actually seen... A, uh, you've never captured a proper photograph no. or anything? No. <laughs> that, that, no, surprisingly enough, we haven't. No, <laughs> but there's, there's plenty of people who will swear blind that they've seen them. <laughs> Uh, Andy, it's been a, a really fascinating podcast today on, on a subject on on a well, on a number of su- of subjects, which I'm sure um, a number of uh, quite quite a few of our, our listeners won't have thought came under the criteria of wildlife crime. Um, it's something obviously that shouldn't happen, and we all uh, wish that it, it wouldn't go on, uh, but it does happen. And I suppose all we can do as people who, who wander the countryside is keep our eyes open and if we see things you know maybe uh, best best port call 101 and 101 or yeah or you know if, if people don't wish to, uh, to you know if they call, wish to call them honestly or, or or email and honestly you can do that through crime stoppers as well okay. so that you know there, there are different ways of doing that but uh, you know i'd always encourage people best to pass the information on rather to sit on it and, and think at some point down the line oh i wish i had phoned in or i wish i had emailed in and told the police about that um but you know we're all we, nobody will you know n- nobody will um criticize you for passing information on you know it's just it, let us make the decision about whether it's relevant or not you know that, that's the best advice i can give andy thank you very much for your time it's been a pleasure speaking to you today no no a pleasure a pleasure to speak to you as well thank you Thank you very much for listening to the show. As we mentioned at the very end of the show, we told you how to contact the police 101 or there's uh, Crime Stoppers. I think it's really important that if you see something, you report it. And as was mentioned before, the police can decide if it's relevant or not. And it just shows you that one person making a phone call about something in one of the islands in one of the islands in Scotland resulted in basically a quite a major crime being 
uh, discovered in the south of England. Yeah, absolutely. And I just will reinforce myself uh, the, the importance of the non-native species because uh, I, I sit on the Esk Rivers and Fisheries Trust and we have been battling for years through projects and finding funding to remove Japanese knotweed from riverbanks uh, and also signal American signal crayfish. They are incredibly difficult, if not mm-hmm. almost impossible, to remove from a river system once they've been illegally um, introduced. To it. Uh, we were able to get on top of one because it came from a uh, like a bit of a pond in somebody's garden. So it was a, a a small network that could be captured and essentially poisoned. That's the only way that you can get rid of. But unfortunately, the, the, when you poison, it kills everything. Kills everything. Uh, so. Just don't do it if you are one of the, if you're somebody who was thinking about letting something go that doesn't belong here. Just don't do it. And if you know people who either have done it in the past or are thinking about doing it, just don't do it because it can have catastrophic consequences for our native species. And uh, you know the signal crayfish is a really good good example of that. Mm-hmm. Now, I urge everybody to go check out thepacebrothers.com. Go to our shop. We got T-shirts. We got mugs. Yep. Ready for Christmas. Go and order some. <laughs> it is the the one-stop shop for everything that we get up to, whether it be our videos, whether it be the shop, yep. whether it be the podcast, or of course our series into the wilderness. Uh, five of six episodes are out, and the sixth episode it's will be out pretty much made. Yeah, so it's, it's going to be out very before soon. Christmas. Uh, and of course, they've got our wilderness hunts as well, and the blogs. So yeah, the wilderness hunts. There is still some spaces on the January hunt if people want to come and experience, experience it, it like we do. Hmm. It's going to be it's going to be brilliant. We've got uh, we've got two people flying over from Sweden. I just uh, spoke to them today. For, two from Sweden, one from Norway. Particular. Yeah, uh, it's going to be it's going to be fantastic. I, I'm really quite excited yep. about. Uh, helping people experience hunting the way that we enjoy doing it. It's going to be a fantastic three days. And if you haven't checked out the product podcast, which has been out the day before, go and check it out. We talk about some of the stuff that we've been using over the last either years or the last year. Um, It's not really product reviews. It's just us talking about stuff that we maybe recommend getting for Christmas or asking for it for Christmas. Yeah, That's the whole it's, uh, Christmas actually, specials. Uh, uh, you'll notice there'll be a Christmas-themed intro for the Christmas specials done by our friend Alex Hume, who also does the intro to this show, where, and we're going to be getting another intro for the new year. New Exciting stuff happening in the podcast. Absolutely. And thank you for everyone that's downloaded last month. Another record month. We've basically smashed our downloads every single month for the amount of people listening. And this month has been... Uh, the biggest increase month on month yeah. since we started doing the podcast a little over a year ago now it's quite phenomenal the amount of you who actually listen to us uh, from all over the world yeah. we, we we got a huge amount of people listen from the uk but we have uh regulars in the us canada australia new zealand yeah um so big so, shout so out to you guys big shout out to uh uh, obviously, we are recording this from Scotland. We both <clears throat> live in Scotland. The, the um, Scots, the we, Scots got, need to. We need more Scots. We, we, we listening. need more Scots listening. And a big thank you to those people in the southeast of England because a huge amount of you in the southeast of England uh, listen to the podcast as well. 
Um, so yeah, it's fantastic. So welcome, hello, and all. Uh, and to thank all you, of you to the one Korean person that downloaded. <laughs> <laughs> Do they download every show? Or is it just one download? No, I think they downloaded a few shows. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you to the Korean person who downloads, <laughs> yeah, or certainly a person in Korea. In Korea, yeah. yeah. Maybe someone. I, who it knows? Could be I, an expat, I, I, maybe. Could, yeah. Who knows? Who knows? But thank you. The point is, thank you to everybody that's been downloading over the last year. I know some of you have been listening from the very beginning, from when we first started. Yeah. And we wouldn't be able to do it without the listeners because without the listeners, we can't get the support that we need to be able to run the show and hopefully bring uh, everybody and the, the wider public great information because that's what it's all about. Mm-hmm. It is. But we'll end the show here. We will. Remember, you're going to be hearing from us in like a few a week. days' time. <laughs> you've got a lot of shows coming up in December. I encourage you to download them all, listen to them, and then have a, a, a little few days' break of it when you're enjoying the festive season. But we'll get to that when we do our final show of December. But remember, subscribe to the show, download on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, YouTube, and December is tell a friend about the show month. Are you bringing that I'm back? Bringing out. that back. Please just tell one or two people about the show. Say, hey, hear about that show you win prizes on every two weeks mm. and it's easy and it's easy it's really easy you either take a picture or you write a review and then they send us stuff yeah <laughs> and we've had we've had a lot of pictures back from the people who we've been yeah. sending prizes out we've sent a lot of prizes out in the last couple of weeks yeah thank yeah. you for listening we're over and out for now we'll speak to you in a week <laughs>